Thanks, Amanda. Uh, we are at the end of a series that has been super cool going through because if you're anything like me uh, growing up in the church, the idea of, man, the idea of heaven was super, super boring. And we've talked about this before, how like if you grew up in the church, sometimes your picture of, of eternity is, is incredibly not, well, it's not compelling. It's this, I, this, this cloud city, happy, flowy, you know, bouncy place where you sing forever and you might run into Morgan Freeman. That's like it. And so like that was kind of the perspective growing up. And it wasn't um, until I realized that that's not only not compelling as far as a reality. I mean, certainly for a Christian kid, that's not compelling, but it's not compelling for a non-Christian kid either. But not only that, it's not biblical. It's not a biblical picture of what we see in eternity. We see all throughout the Bible, Jesus talking about the fact that he is all about bringing about this kingdom. This is what the disciples got really stoked up about, but that this kingdom was going to come and that it was going to restore all things. And it was going to make, the promise in Revelation 21.5 is, see, I, I made all things new. Not made all new things, I made all things new which means that God is not kicking this planet to the curb. He's not kicking the physicality of the human body to the curb. He's restoring it. He's renewing it. And so even with the set, as we said before, we wanted to have a picture of heaven and all the natural world that God has envisioned, heaven itself coming down and restoring earth. And that is something that if you're in Christ, you have that to look forward to. We talked about how, like, just how we can't, can't wait to start exploring in eternity. You don't need a bucket list because if you, if you die tomorrow or you die when you're 80 years old, if you're in Christ, you have an eternity to explore and understand. You may not know a lot now or you may have things you wish you had a chance to learn and develop. You have an eternity to do that because all of that is worship. God, the very thing that, that stokes us up about life right now, that, that excites us about being utilized and used, we get a chance to step into that throughout eternity. That's what we have to look forward to. Um, but again, it's something that, that the disciples had a difficult time wrapping their mind around. And, and this, is, this is something that Jesus continued to, he wanted to correct their expectations time and time again. Their expectations was that their happiness and their security was going to come right now. The context of what, what Amanda just read was Jesus was just leaving the temple. And as he's leaving the temple, he's like, this whole system of this whole temple system, this, all the religious elite that I just called out, this is over. This is old school. We're moving into something radically new. And the disciples are, by the, before they got to Bethany, Jesus takes a break on the hike. They get out of the, the temple area. They go down the Kidron Valley and they're walking up this hill. Jesus takes a break on the side. And they're like, is it going to happen now? Like, is our happiness coming now? Is the kingdom coming now? And Jesus started to drop a bunch of things about par just parables that you and I have heard if you grew up in church, but maybe we didn't put them in context with what it was that he was saying about this expectation that is to come. Expectation is a weird thing. How many of you have ever had expectations in something that disappointed? Okay, so you saw Matrix Revolutions. Okay. We, we've, you know what it's like to go into something with a high expectation and be totally disappointed walking out of it, right? And that's because of this. This is just a truism. You could take it or leave it, but this is something that I, when I was developing it, this message this week, this is what just came to mind. This is our story. Solid, like high, solid expectations in weak foundations always lead to strong what? Frustrations. Weak foundations are like, possess like possessions. All my, I'm, I'm putting my hope in the things that I could acquire and own. Or I, a weak foundation is, is in power, like my influence. Like I, people are finally listening to me now that I'm powerful enough and I've, and I've, and I've got a hoard that I've got to hold on to that because if I lose my influence, what's going to happen? Or, or even people. People. We have, we have expectations in people. How many of you have been disappointed by a person before? 
How many of you have ever been disappointed by yourself before? How many of you have ever been disappointed by a politician before? Yes, okay, right. And so because these are weak foundations. They're not bad things to love or, 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 or follow. They're not bad things to invest our life in, but they're terribly bad foundations. Solid expectations and weak foundations always lead to strong frustrations. You want to know the most frustrated people on planet Earth? They're not the people that have the most bad happen to them, believe it or not. In fact, you're going to find the most, some of the most frustrated people in developed countries that seem to have everything solid. The most frustrated people on planet Earth are the people who are surprised by the bad that comes into their life because their expectation is, why is this happening? How could a good God allow this? How could a good country allow this? How could a good relationship allow this? Why is it that I get into another relationship and every time I'm in a new relationship, this is going to be the one and it's going to be right, it's going to be good and it's a matter of time before some of the same things that were problematic in the last relationship surface in that one. Why is it that like this job, which was going to be so much better than my last job, and it was for a good three and a half hours, why is it that now it is now starting to surface some of the same frustrations I had in the last one? Solid expectations and weak foundations always, perpetually, inevitably lead to strong frustration. So what does Jesus do with his disciples who are walking in that same path? They're swimming in that same pool. He turns it around. And he starts talking about kingdom from a perspective of not this immediate experience of happiness and, and, and all things new now, but something that's down the road. Solid expectations in the strongest foundation actually leads to a radically different perspective and worldview and, and outlook. It changes your life. Basically, this is living farsighted. I'm having a farsight on the fact that Jesus said, I'm going to return and, I'm going, and you're holding on to Revelation 21.5 that I'm going to make all things new. And if you're here in 2019 and you have no clue when he's coming back, you have the ability to have a far side of you saying, I don't know how long it's going to be. I don't know when it's going to happen. But between now and here, I have something that God has given me to live out. And that far sided, that focus, fantasy, fantasizing, my imagination, going to scripture and looking at what God's promised and keeping my eyes trained on that actually impacts the now more than anything else. It produces different things in our life. The first thing that, that a farsighted living produces is anticipation. It actually produces a, a tendency in us to choose ultimate happiness over temporary temptations. So Jesus, in that passage that, that Amanda was talking about, again, the disciples have just, they've come out of, 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 of the temple area. They went down to the Kidron Valley, up towards Bethany, and the disciples are like super, super excited. Is it happening now? And Jesus said, no, hold on. In fact, here's the thing. You need to know, it's not going to happen now. You don't have power come, you know, because they thought as soon as Jesus becomes king and he overthrows our current kingdom situation, not only are the Romans God gone, but also all of the, the religious elite are gone. And, and Jesus is like the El Capitan priest and we're like his sidekicks. This is going to be awesome. That's what's in our future. That's in our immediate, like, next couple of steps. And Jesus said, you want to know what's going to happen in your next couple of steps? You know what's happening in your immediate future? You're going to die. You're going to get killed. You're not going to be more powerful. You're going to be more dead. It's going to be difficult. Not only that, not just you guys, like our whole community. When I'm talking about the overflow of this, this temple system, it's going to come by way of the oppressors. There's going to be like people in a field. And the, what the Romans do is they come through and to get like a psychological warfare thing going on, there'll be two people staying in a field. One person's taken out. The other one stays. There'll be someone like living in a house with someone and they wake up and that person's gone. 
psychological warfare is going to take place. In fact, it's going to happen so that the, the, even the ravens are going to be the only way that you're going to find out where your loved ones are. The eagles flying above, the, the, the birds circling the corpses. That's how you're going to find out. Jesus is saying that's what's in your future. So he, then he says this in verse 42. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day our Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus was not trying to instill anxiety. He was trying to, to actually shortchange their apathy because they had this tendency to go like, well, we're, we're like made men now. We're set because we've got a connection with you, Jesus. And Jesus said, no, we have work to do. He underscores that in Acts 1. Uh, this, this thing that, and so what Jesus starts to do is this. He, tries, uh, he, he actually goes into like four parables where he's trying to communicate to a first century person that's on a lower rung of society what, it, what it's like to, to be waiting. And so he talks it through the lens of like, a, like be, working for wealthy masters or, or landowners, people that had, had a lot of pull over you and you had basically had to do what you said. Understanding it from the, 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 through the lens of a first century Jewish wedding or, or, or like a landowner that's going on a ma- major trip and he's making sure that he's like giving money to the people that he works, that work for him and then what he's expecting when he comes back. And, and the idea of like how you raise cattle. Jesus goes into these four different parables one by one. The first one he's talking about with the anticipation is this idea of, of a, a person who's a faithful worker versus wicked. He talks about this, this scene where, where you have um, a master who's going away. And this is what he says in verse 45. This is the very next verse. What then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household? Give them, does it, I mean, sorry, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time. It'll be good for the servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. And Jesus is, is talking about this through the lens of, you know, you guys know what it's like. You guys have had like cousins who, who've worked for people, like worked for someone who, who goes away on a journey. And if they're working in that house as a servant in that household, what is the expectation? Like as soon as the master's gone, it's like, sweet. Now we're gonna have like an 80s level house party. Invite all the friends and we'll we'll make sure that like 15 minutes before he gets back, we'll vacuum and the last thing will be done before he walks in and then it'll be all good. Is that what you do? No. Do you just like to get super, super lazy? No. He's like, you know, I don't know when he's gonna come back. So basically I don't even have to work. I can go drink with my buddies and that's, that's what I'm gonna be doing. No. Like all, everyone would understand, you live every day for someone like that, like you're going to be working as if they could be walking out the door and walking back 10 minutes later because you don't know when they're coming back. And, and so Jesus says, he's giving this impression to the disciples, like if you would do that for like a human master, that you knew that if he came back and he found that you were super lazy and that you were beating up your fellow employees and getting super drunk instead of doing your work, that he would not only like chew you out, but he'd cast you out of the house. If you, if, and because of that motivation, you would actually start to live and work better. If you do that for a human master, why, why would you not do that for me? Because I'm coming back. And if you would actually be on that level of a work ethic with him, why wouldn't you live in the anticipation of my own return, because what that does is that actually causes us to choose ultimate happiness over temporary temptations, which of course brings us 
to John Calvin and the Goonies. John Calvin, uh, the 1500s uh, reformer and French theologian, and Goonies, an amazing 80s film. John Calvin, talking about Matthew 24 and this whole passage, says this. He's describing this weird situation of the disciples' expectations being not met in Jesus. Their expectations, again, were that the kingdom was coming now. Happiness, security, now. And Jesus and, and, John, and John Calvin is saying that they were, they were trying to shortchange the process and the journey that Jesus was having them on. He says this, We now perceive that they leap at once to various questions because they had given way to these foolish imaginations that it would be immediately followed, immediately followed by the exhibition of the glory of Christ's kingdom, which would make the children of God perfectly happy that a visible renovation of the world was at hand, which would instantly bring order out of a state of confusion. But above all, a foolish hope, which they entertained as to the immediate reign of Christ, drove them to hasten to the attainment of happiness and rest without attending to the means. Just as when they see that Christ is risen from the dead, they, this is in Acts 1, they rush forward to grasp at that happiness which is laid up for us in heaven and which must be attained through faith and patience. John Calvin is, is making this, this, this great point that, that, that these guys wanted, I mean, when... They did this before the cross, they did it after. After they saw that Jesus rose from the grave, they're like, sweet, now the thing that we were hoping for way back then in, in Matthew 24, now it can happen, right? You rose, you rose from the dead. Now you're going to become king. And Jesus says, no, this is something that you're still anticipating. You still have work to do. There's no shortcut to this security. You have to go through this journey. Back to Goonies. There's a scene, if you have, how many of you have seen Goonies? Just like, okay. Um, for, that's a majority of us, all right. So if, if in Goonies, you've got this, this, the whole story, if you haven't seen it, homework. But Mikey, right there, the guy who's standing up, his parents, his family, and the rest of his friends are going to get kicked out of the boondocks because this rich land developer is coming through. And what are they going to make instead of, where they're going to tear down all the homes, and what are they going to make? Golf course, that's right. As they're making this golf course, their family doesn't have enough money to buy their way out of this, and it's frustrating. But he finds a treasure map. One-eyed Willie's treasure map. And all he has to do is follow this treasure map. He's going to get to the rich stuff. And so he convinces his friends to go on this journey. They go on this journey. And ultimately, they come to this massive pool of water where there's all these coins. And they're all excited. The rich stuff is finally here. Until they realize that they're quarters and nickels and dimes and pennies. Because they're at the bottom of a wishing well. A country club wishing well. And then they turn on Mikey and they freak out. Where's the rich stuff? Where's the rich stuff? And all of a sudden, they hear a voice from above. From above, through the cavern of that wishing well, they hear Troy's voice, the jerk boyfriend in the story. And he's like, what are you guys doing down there? And, and all of a sudden, they, he extends down a bucket to which they realize we're saved, we're rescued. This has been a, they've been frustrated. We didn't get to the rich stuff. This has been frustrating, long, dangerous, life-threatening journey that Mikey has led us on. This is our way out. And then Mikey turns and he gives this amazing speech. He says, don't you realize the next time you see sky going to be in some other town. Next time you take a test, it's going to be in some other school. Our parents, they want the best of stuff for us up there. Up there, it's their time. It's our time down here. Down here, it's our time. That all ends the second we take Troy's bucket. And he convinces them in that statement to continue on the journey. And spoiler alert, I don't care if I spoil this because it's like an ancient movie, they get to One-Eyed Willie's treasure. They get to the rich stuff. And the very security for their family that they were longing for and hoping for in the very beginning happens by the end of the film. They would have shortchanged and never have seen a second of that 
if they would have taken Troy's bucket. So what is Jesus talking to us about? Jesus is talking to his disciples about this fact that we have an amazing, game-changing reality that will help us avoid falling into temptation like the wicked servant. You know what Troy's bucket is? Troy's bucket is simply that escape that each one of us has. Like, you know what? This journey that I'm on following Jesus, it's been a long time. I started following Jesus when I was this age. He hasn't returned. Life is difficult. But you know what? This, it, it, he's gone for so long, it doesn't matter if I do this. It doesn't matter if I escape this way. Troy's bucket, we fill that with escapes all the time. I don't know, what, I, I don't know all of your issues, but your issue might be like a, like a substance issue where it's like, look, I need this to get through the day. Your, your issue might be like, it might be like not a substance, it might just be a, a, like a habit. Like you, you're not super proud of it, but, but it's, it's your escape. It's your Troy's bucket. And sometimes we go to that bucket so often to try to shortchange the difficulty of this journey that we forfeit our ability to see what it leads to. Jesus talks unashamedly about reward in eternity. Eternity. That it makes it worth it. We have anticipation that causes us to choose ultimate happiness over temporary temptations. But not only that, farsighted living also produces celebration, which is us actually choosing purposeful preparation over boredom and despair. The next story that Jesus tells his disciples is this. He's like, he's like talking to them about, about a wedding. Now, how many of you in here have ever been a bridesmaid? Okay. All right, congratulations. Never been one. I have no idea. I don't know what goes into it. I didn't even see the movie, so I've got seriously no clue. But, but bridesmaids have a certain, I guess they have a certain function in, in today's weddings outside of just like wearing a nice dress and being up front. I, I don't know what it is. But in the first century, you had major responsibility. Your responsibility was to be, to keep the party going by making sure that, 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 that it was all illuminated. Back in the day, well, the way a wedding would start is the groom would leave his house, usually at night. And he would leave his house with all of his family and they would go and they would go down this trail to get to the bride-to-be's house. And they'd get there at the house and at the house they would have the wedding celebration right there. Everyone's excited, super cool. And then they would go back to his house for the reception. And from the, from the reception, he would go right into the honeymoon. It was seamless, it was amazing. Now, what the bridesmaid job back in the day was, was this. In order to get him there and for that to party to continue on there had to be light and so what they had was they had these these torches that had on the end like just um, something that would be burning but you needed to continue to replenish that with oil so if you're a good bridesmaid um, and you, you really care about this family you would go ahead and in advance because you don't know exactly when the groom's going to come whenever the house is ready that he's built for the bride and so you just would be ready at any point point. and so you're like you've got all the torches ready okay sweet oil oil and then you go to sam's club you get the oil you get now you got all the oil you're like ready to go you're like all right Whenever he comes, I'm good to go because as soon as I hear, the groom is coming, the groom is coming, I would get this lit, get all my reserves, and I would head on out there to light the path. And then when my torch runs out of oil, fill up with some more oil, and I would like keep the party going at the ceremony. And when everyone's super pumped to go start partying, we'd head on back on over to his house, and we'd have the reception, and I'd keep on replenishing the soil. So Jesus is talking with his disciples who know this practice, and he's, like, and he's kind of given this, this impression, like, well, you guys know like, what it's like to, if, if you've had really, really, really super lazy, sketchy bridesmaids at a wedding. Like, oh yeah, my sister, totally understand. Because what would happen if you were super lazy is this, that guy, I have no idea when he's going to finish that house. It doesn't even, you know, I'll be ready when I'm ready. And you just wait, and you get bored. And then you just do whatever you want to do. Because, you know, you have no clue when this guy's coming. You have no idea when he's going to start heading back. The bridesmaids that were good, though, were the ones, and this was the norm, is that you would have everything ready to go. 
Jesus in this parable talks about the fact that the bridesmaids are shocked. The, the, the lazy bridesmaids are shocked that he's coming. They're like, oh no, oh no, oh no. And then they turn to the ones who are already prepared and say, can we please have some of your oil? They're like, no. Like, we need this to keep the party going. You should have been prepared. He keeps on coming back to that reality. Do you realize that right now we're waiting for the groom? Jesus described himself as the groom and the church as the bride. And, and in that parable, he's like, the groom is going to return. Will you be prepared? Or are you going to be like, like the super lazy, sketchy bridesmaid who's just like, I don't know when he's going to come back, so it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. Instead, we have the object of celebration that's coming and the far-sighted view of that, which causes us to have celebration now. Theologian Gary Black, theologian and professor Gary Black put it this way, the Bible speaks of now and forever as a continuation of a single existence. Consequently, much of the transcendent purpose God has for human life can only be properly discerned in light of eternity. Unfortunately, for an ever-increasing number of us who suffer through the pain and disillusionment of dysfunctional relationships with our families and marriages, of political or social injustice, of physical and emotional abuse, and of mental or psychological disorientation, our lives simply do not and will not make sense without eternity as a backdrop on which God can manifest his endless love, redemptive power, and enabling grace. Such a perspective alone has the potential to revolutionize the universe. All right, now, I would say a majority of us here probably follow Jesus, believe in Jesus. Some of us might not, and if, you're, if you don't believe in Jesus, I'm so glad that you're here. Let's just roll with, with your, your working perspective right now. This is not really a trustworthy book, and, and the Jesus stuff is great, but it just isn't accurate. All that we have is this life. There's nothing in the future. Okay, let's roll with that. If all we have on this planet is, let's say, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, most of us are going to tap out by 90 unless you're like a Jankowski and they go into like the hundreds. They're like tortoises. But for the rest of us, we're going to, we have like a, a shelf life that's sh shallower than that. Okay, I'm, I'm 42, so I've got, you know, let's just, say, let's just say four decades more, maybe, if I outlast my grandparents, my grandpa. All right, so like that, that's kind of like how much I've got left, right? If there's nothing, if, there's, if this is all inaccurate and this is all that I have, this life, and when I take my last breath, that's my last existence, I have every right to be as exuberant as possible when things are, the mo few moments of my life where everything is right. I should be ecstatic. I, I, should be, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't care about boasting about it because this life, which is so fractured and fragmented and broken, finally went right for me for a couple moments. And I should be, I have every right to be exuberant. I also have every right to be devastated when it doesn't because I only have this much life. As soon as I start experiencing loss, loss of a relationship, loss of a loved one, loss of reputation, loss of time, I should realize that I have just wasted or something has happened to me that has caused a waste of existence that I will never ever get back, and that I have every right to be devastated by that. What is the Christian's perspective? We're bridesmaids. We're going to go through a life right now that is going to experience loss and pain and confusion, and this should work out, but we're, we're never in a situation where we're like, how could a good God allow? Because what, what we end up getting to a place is this, we realize that there is so much pain and tragedy here, but our story extends beyond this. 
If I'm, if I'm on the shelf or on the fence about, about my faith in God, I have every right to say, I don't know if there's anything out here. How could a good God allow this? I would every right. I'd be, that would be completely logical. Unless this is not all there is. Unless this leads infinitely more, where all of a sudden I get to see that the full timeline of God's love and redemption included all of this. That is the only way this makes sense. And if that, all of a sudden, through the pain, even things that I don't get, even the loss I can't get back, I realize that I will be in a place where nothing will be lost and all will be restored. Such a perspective alone has the potential to revolutionize the universe. Anticipation celebration. And far-sighted living produces multiplication because this life that it's like the reason that we're carrying the torch is not just for his return. We're supposed to be prepared for that, but we're also supposed to be doing something in the midst of it. We get to choose to invest our lives now beyond our lifespan. Jesus transitions to that, that, that famous story of, of the, the wealthy um, landowner or, or manager or business person who's going off on some type of business trip and he's giving three of his servants this lump sum of money. And one of the guys does what I probably would have done, which is like, okay, do not spend this on candy. Do not spend this on candy. I'm just going to bury it. I'm not going to gamble with it. I'm not going to buy drugs with it. I'm not going to be living high on the land with it. I'm just going to bury it because when he comes back, I want to make sure he gets everything back he gave me. The other two decide instead to invest it. They decide to actually take this because and as Jesus is talking with his disciples, this would be normative, of course. Because he'd be talking to them and say, okay, so if, if, your brother who works for, if your brother works for that guy over there, when that guy went on that trip and he came back, what was his expectation of the stuff that he left your brother? Well, he's, of course that he wasn't going to waste it. Yes, and then what? That he was going to do something with it. That there, when the master came back, he actually would have done something with what he gave him that there'd be more. And he'd be rewarded for that. Exactly. So if your brother would do that, for that landowner over there, why wouldn't we do that for my return? Why, why wouldn't that be part of our norm experience and perspective? That my expectation is that I've given you something as well. That when I've given you something, that the expectation is that you're going to multiply it. Jesus talks in that story, and the two of the servants that actually, the, the one servant that just buried it, he, he chews them out. The, the, the landowner, the, the business person, chews them out. But the other two, who actually invested the, the, what they brought in, he says to them, you have been faithful with what? A few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's what? Happiness. Jesus continues to advocate, not against happiness. He's all about happiness. Just ultimate happiness. Happiness that you can actually enjoy for a lot longer period of time than a small period of time. And his happiness comes alongside your diligence and your work now. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. So my question to you is this. What has God put you faithfully in charge of? What are the few things that he's given you? I know what he's given me, but what has he given you that he expects you to be faithful with? Because for, for us, for, let me just speak personally. For us, my family... He's given me time, and that's, that's one of the few things God's given me is some time. What, do I, what am I doing with my time? He's given me relationships. What am I doing with my relationships? He's given me resources. He's given me privilege. I don't know if you knew this or not, but I'm white. I'm so very white. I'm whiter than white. And, and, I, and I actually have the capacity to ignore my whiteness until I look in the mirror or until I'm around people that aren't white. 
And the one thing that's amazing is this. Every single person has privilege. As a white guy, I have white privilege that I have a decision to make about whether or not I'm going to leverage that for the good of others or I'm going to basically ignore it or hold it to myself. As I've told you before, when I was in school in in Los Angeles, I was one of the few white kids in my class. I did not, my white privilege was not a privilege there. It was a curse. But my friend, my Hispanic friend who's brown, used his brown privilege and he leveraged that for me, the outsider. Everyone has privilege. Are you recognizing that and utilizing it or are you just ignoring it? You have influence and voice that other people do not have. Are you using that for God's glory and the good of others or are you holding on to it for yourself? You may be athletic. Are you using your athletic privilege? That's, something that, that's one of the few things God has given you. You may be respected in your, in your workplace or in your school. You, you may be popular. Are you hoisting your popularity and using that as a few things? You might be the king of all dorks. You are the dorkiest dork, dork, dork. There is no other dork as revered as your, in your dorkness, okay? Are you using your dorkness? Because you've got a privilege and a platform with people in your circle that the popular kids cannot penetrate. Are you using that for God's glory? One of my problems growing up in the church, and the, my, I had a very wonderful understanding of grace, that I can't do anything to earn my salvation. Ephesians 2 talks about that. There's nothing that I can do to earn my salvation. I was not good enough for God to save me. He didn't say, you know what, one day I'm going to save this guy. Because one day, Errol, he's going to grow up, and he's going to be a pastor, he's going to wear bad cardigans on stage, he's going to preach the gospel, so boom, I'm going to rescue him. Nope. I was dead in my sin. There was nothing, nothing redeemable about me when God saved me. And you too, if if you've been rescued. The problem is, is that that's only half of the gospel. The gospel I adhere to was, I do nothing for my salvation. Which is true, but I let that bleed over unbiblically to, now that I'm saved, I do nothing for within my salvation. I went from I do nothing for my salvation to do I do nothing within my salvation, which causes apathy. Jesus is talking to disciples who want to walk into prestige, and he's saying, no, you have work to do, and the work that I've got for you is going to cost you your very lives. You need to get, until I return, keep focused on that, have a far side of you on that, but you need to keep working until I return. Just to put it this way, if, you, if your confidence in what Jesus has already done for your future causes you to casually do nothing now, you've missed the real Jesus. If your confidence in what Jesus has already done for your future causes you, causes you to casually do nothing now, you have missed the real Jesus. He is time and time again calling us into using what he's given us in this life for his glory. Farsighted living does that. It also actually leans in on transformation. This is what's so cool because when we actually obey God, we get transformed as we're seeing transformation happen. We are people that are called to see needs and not look the other way, but choose to meet them now with eternity in view. Jesus gives that that faithful example about the the sheep and the goats and how any good shepherd would separate out the animals. And he's like, well, God's going to do the same thing. He's going to separate us out. And you know what? The difference between the sheep and the goats, and the goats is not greatest of all time. Goats was like, okay, this is like the bad part of the equation. He's like, the sheep, he talks to him in this parable and says, you know what? When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in jail, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. Because you did that, you're going to get great reward. Enter into your your master's happiness. Enter into your king's happiness. 
He turns to the people that didn't, and he says, whenever you didn't visit me in jail, whenever you saw me naked and you looked the other way, whenever you saw needs and you, and you, you just were disillusioned to them, you were totally jaded to them, you did that not to those people, you did that to me. And Jesus talks about this in this example, saying this is how it is. And, he, and, he, and in verses 40 and 45 of that, that chapter, he says, then Jesus will say, whatever you did for the least of these, you did it for me. Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do it for me. His expectation is that we don't simply be a people that say, well, it's too much. There's too much need around me. No, we step into it. That's why we do stuff like the Majestic. We invest in, 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 in local kids that don't have permanent homes because we want to come alongside them. You know, lots of Christians, they talk about like how um, abortion is wrong. That's great, but they do nothing for the 16-year-old girl who's pregnant and, and, and scared to death. This is why, like, later on this spring, we have, we have a ministry that comes alongside single moms who are pregnant to resource them, let them know that you're not alone. We're going to walk alongside you. Christians step into these things. They see needs, and they meet them. Because, and, and they're going to ignore Satan's temptation to believe. It doesn't matter. Who am I? I can't do much. If you don't believe me, listen to Art, who went to Haiti, who had a chance to, to carry some kids who couldn't even walk for themselves and, and felt these kids clutching on him as he brought them out to oceans where they could finally see the beach and experience just a difference and, and what that did inside of him, causing him to long for heaven. Take a look. Hi, my name is Art Graff, and uh, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, heaven today. And um, I had gone to Haiti earlier this year you know, with the team in the first part of the year, January 1st. And so when we went to Haiti, we were driving around. I was driving around in a van and uh, just looking around. It's like a TV screen out the van window. And I can remember looking out the window thinking, there's so much struggle, so much um, hurt, and uh, people were just struggling everywhere. And it was everywhere I looked out the window. It was almost like, a, like I said, like a TV screen of looking into these people's lives and seeing it. And it wasn't just these people, but it was the kids at the orphanage, Jehovah Rapha house that we were working at. And uh, it was really hard to see all that struggle and to keep a positive attitude. I just felt like Satan was telling me, no matter what you do, it's not gonna matter. You know, and what you're doing isn't enough and um, it's not gonna help. And I remember thinking, that's just a lie. That's a lie, and I knew it was a lie, but it started to make me feel um, hopeless. Is I was longing, I was longing for heaven. The helpless, the hopelessness that I felt um, made me just think of heaven. And especially when I was holding that little girl, Jocelyn, and looking around and seeing these other kids that couldn't communicate, they had it even harder than the people that I saw walking the streets and in the van that day. And holding Jocelyn, I wasn't, like I shared before, she was holding me. Um, by the end, she was holding me. Um, just made me realize how much I was longing for heaven. And, that, and sharing with the group that night, everyone kind of had the same thoughts on, they can't wait for heaven. I had not longed for heaven like that, maybe for myself, but not for somebody else or a group of people um, like the kids in the orphanage. They can't talk, they can't, um, communicate with me to tell me that but I just felt that longing also with Jocelyn 
couldn't wait to hear her talk. And part of heaven for me is going to be able to talk to these kids that couldn't speak to me at that time, but will. And their bodies aren't going to be curled up anymore. Her legs aren't going to be um, curled up underneath her, but she's going to be able to walk. And it made me think of that song, I Can Only Imagine. In the beginning of the song, it talks about walking by your side. And I know that means about God, but since it's not God's word, I can take the song however I want. So with that song, it talks about walking by my side. And I can picture Jocelyn walking by my side and all these other kids walking and playing in that park that we were at and just longing for the time that we can do that. And part of the song talks about um, walking and looking in her face and being able to talk to her. And in that song, it talks about what I will see with my eyes. It says, I can only imagine what my eyes will see. And I can imagine what my eyes are going to see. And the longing um, that we all have for heaven is intensified by what these kids are going through. But when I looked around and I saw all these people on our team helping other kids, it made me realize the great liar was lying to me when he said, nothing you can do, nothing you can say, and what you're doing is hopeless. You might as well not do it because it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we were at the park and I can remember um, there was, Paul Koffel was with one of the older kid guys and he was blind and he was on the swing, but he was yelling from the swing, I can see heaven, that he thought he could see heaven. He was going, so he's blind, but he felt like he could see heaven. And that's what, that's what we long for, right? That's what we long to see heaven, whether it's, you know, and Haiti, Errol talked about how heaven is going to be on this earth. And Haiti's going to be changed. America's going to be changed. It's not great here either, but there's not going to be that struggle. And Satan isn't going to have the power to tell me, nothing you can do is going to help because we long for that eternal salvation of, of being in heaven. Jesus Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. We need to be a church that is far-sighted, that is fixated and focused on what Jesus promised us, not to escape now, but to allow that reality to bleed into our current decisions. And, and even if you're feeling like, you know what, seriously, my world is, it is crazy town. It is sketchy, it's bad. In every way I can think of, it's difficult, it's dead. And it's great to think about him making all things new, but right now I feel like I'm walking in a whole lot of death. Well, I just got to encourage you with this one thing. Jesus is all about bringing things that are dead back to life. I mean, that's kind of the key component of the Christian faith. It's one of the key components that we understand as, as part of our story, redemption and rescue. Um, and just as a picture of that, uh, again, we, 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 we took down these trees from the north side of our property to, to illustrate that picture of heaven coming down to restore this earth. Uh, but we, we chopped down these trees. We put them out in the yard for a couple of weeks. They're dead. And then I had my kids spray paint them like you do and just spray paint them white. And, uh, and then we left them out there for a couple more weeks. And then we brought them in here and we you know, jostled them around and then hung them upside down and put little uh, strings on them and washers and everything else. And they're dead. They're dead, dead. But then all of a sudden, uh, a couple of weeks back, something started to happen, which is weird because they're dead. <laughs> But there's something inside of creation that God has built into us like, nope, not yet. 
What I want to encourage you with is this. Be the type of person who recognizes that the very thing that God has called you into is what Romans 8 describes. Romans 8 describes this. Eugene Peterson paraphrased it by saying, that's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hand times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. Eldridge put it this way, if you really believed that, you'd be the happiest person in the world. Jesus talked about heaven and earth becoming one. He told us that when he told us how to pray. This is how you should pray. And I'd like you to read this with me, the first couple lines of the Lord's Prayer. Let's read it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day, earth and heaven will be united. Jesus is our king. And if you're in him, if your heart has been opened to the great restorative work of what Jesus did on the cross, you will be there to experience it. You'll be home. And that is worth celebrating. Amen? Amen. Let's pray for this morning. Pray for this morning's offering. And uh, we'll close after that. Lord Jesus, um, you have put us in charge of decisions and choices that we can choose to follow your lead or we can choose to be selfish or scared. We can choose to be anxious and apathetic when you've called us into action. Lord, I pray for the people that have just been um, living a super boring, dull Christian life, that you'll reignite the flame of the torch, that we'll be ready for you to return, and we'll be ready by the decisions that we're making, that we'll be empowered through the gospel work of what you accomplished on the cross, that we did not earn, but that you set us up to flesh out and live out. And Lord, I cannot wait to see you face to face, but Lord, I pray that you help every one of my decisions between now and then to be ones that are aiming towards your kingdom. And Lord, as we give today's offering, God, I pray that you help us as a church to be wise stewards of that, that it truly goes to making an impact locally, cross-culturally, and then even globally, God, for your glory. And we'll give you thanks for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.